Well, we're the Wild West, and what a wild week of news, y'all. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I'm here with contributor Andrew Corrali and, drumroll if you got it, our brand new co-host, Sarah Lohman. We're going to be talking about how Vegas is avoiding the largest hospitality strike in history, how downtown Las Vegas bounced back after the pandemic, and may have done it in a way that's the best in the country. And we'll wrap up today with some fun Q&A with Sarah Lohman. It's Friday, November 10th. I'm David Figler, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Andrew Crawley, welcome to CityCast Las Vegas. Hey, good morning, David. Great to be here. And Sarah Lohman, welcome to your first official podcast here as our co-host. Thank you, David. I got myself a new job. It's this job, being a yeah. co-host. I'm, I'm absolutely pumped. You know I love Las Vegas. I do. And you've been such a great guest on CityCast in the past and I'm looking forward to uh, our future together as co-hosts. Yeah, I was super lucky that I was a contributor before because I realized that I really loved the CityCast team. So I applied and a million interviews uh, later, here I am. I'm sorry to anyone I beat out for this job. We can still be friends, I promise. (laughs) I'm super nice. We're all friends. We're all friends. Thunderdome complete. (laughs) Well, and now here we are in the Friday News Roundup. So let's get to it, man. Um, Andrew Crawley, the strike is averted. Culinary has a contract. Uh, What's going on? Yeah, uh, very exciting. So uh, this week, the Culinary had a couple of announcements. Uh, It announced Wednesday that it had reached a tentative labor deal with Caesars Entertainment. And then on Thursday morning, announced that they reached a tentative deal with MGM International. Um, So this is kind of exciting because it heads off the ugly but possibly exciting prospect of a strike that was originally scheduled for today. Um, So this strike would have been of historic proportions. You're going to be hearing that Mm. word a lot. Historic, historic, historic. Um, Because it would have, you know, also just taken place a week before the high profile F1 race and, you know, would have by all accounts thrown a big fat monkey wrench into the racing festivities. So, uh, yeah, the deal is, uh, you know, people are very excited about it. Ted Papa George, uh, the secretary treasurer of the culinary, um, says this is a historic deal, covers, you know, all, you know, all these uh, MGM and Caesars properties. It's for five years, uh, covers, uh, I think, almost like 20,000 employees. So, uh, yeah, no, no, no strike for us. Yeah. And I, I should note that we're recording this on Thursday when properties have yet to sign off. But I, I think that it's pretty much inevitable. The The big ones have already done it when will in all likelihood follow suit. Yes, yes. We are in a fact fluid environment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But both, you know, the union and the companies, like you said, Andrew, are calling this deal historic. Uh, certainly is some of the biggest pay increases that we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of other concessions, too. Do, does our union success here, you think, bode well for other unions across the country? Or is this a very special case? No, I mean, I think that we're seeing unions as a huge movement across the country. It's really exciting to see unions like back and perhaps better than ever. I mean, of course, we saw the writer's strike. I want to say that the actor's strike has come to a conclusion. Yep, that ended uh, that ended two days ago. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw on Instagram, I have a friend that was posting from the picket lines every day and he posted from home the other night. So I was like, wait, is there a deal? You know, I come from museum background too. And so I'm seeing more and more museums also unionize as well. So there is a movement back to, gosh, like, like make sh- let's make sure we have a decent standard of living here. So, I, you know, I can't say, but my hope is that this is just one um, event in a major sea change for our country. I mean, Andrew, what do you think? Did the casinos ever even stand a chance? Oh, I thought that this, the momentum behind the culinary, I, I think, I think Sarah points to this, you know, this, this kind of like, uh, you, you know, sort of momentous narrative. And there's a lot of enthusiasm for labor right now. And when people do these Gallup polls, and they ask for their support for organized labor, it's polling really high. So I, I feel like that the mm-hmm. culinary had, you know, the sort of the strong hand all along. But I, I hate to be the cloud that that uh, rains on the parade on Sarah's first day. Um, but I think it's <laughs> I think it's important to to look at the big picture as well. And this sounds like a great deal for the culinary um, secretary, treasurer, Ted Papa George, straight shooter. Um, so when he says historic, I'm like, OK, that sounds good. I mean, I believe on historic. I don't know that any union official in that posture is always straightforward or transparent. Mm. But I'm going to let you finish, Andrew Crowley. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I, I mean, I've known him personally over the years in, in covering labor, and that's been my impression as a journalist that he's been, you know, straightforward, honest, and earnest. So I guess whenever he throws around the word historic, it carries a bit more weight. And so these tiered pay increases um, sound good. The protections against being replaced by robots, I think that's very prescient because that's going to be, you know, a big conversation that all of society is going to be having. Um, the daily room room cleanings, uh, reinstating that. I think it's just good marketing and, and good common sense. Um, yeah, but, people have missed it. Yeah, yeah. But I think the the sort of the, the, the big picture to me suggests that the culinary in some ways is kind of a shining exception to the, the broader narrative of what's happening with labor. And um, I did a little research and only 6% of you know folks in the private workforce are part of an actual labor union as opposed to like 35% um, back in the day in the 50s. And so- you know, since then, you know, due to, you know, federal regulations, uh, the rise of the gig economy, manufacturing go- going overseas, <laughs> Ronald Reagan, um, you know, the power of labor has, has you know, been diminishing, you know, year over year. So I, I think in some ways it's a hopeful exception to the, the dominant uh, current of, of what's going on with, with organized labor. So um, it gives me, um, you know, provisional tentative hope. Yeah. And, you know, just people have been referring to Vegas as a union city, you mm-hmm. know, as, as I'm sort of evangelizing my relatively new, I moved here about two years ago. And as I talked to my friends across the country and, you know, people think of Vegas as the strip, which, you know, has so much to do with this. But now their second thought is, yeah, and it's a really good union city. So I think that this has also brought like a lot of, uh, you know, maybe we will be sort of a leader in terms of encouraging other people to unionize and strike. And the momentum on this has been amazing. You know, it is funny, though, like, the perception of Las Vegas as a union town, and certainly culinary unions, so powerful, so strong, so important in our community. But we're also a, a right to work state. And there are, you know, a lot of really hostile to uh, worker uh, environs uh, throughout mm-hmm. throughout the state. So it is a really interesting dichotomy. I, I want to get back to the to the actual threat of the strike, though. I mean, I've been called out 
uh, by some of my friends who were in the culinary for, you know, pointing out the theatrics of a lot of what had occurred. And, you know, I, I think it objectively one can say that culinary employed several tactics in the lead up to these discussions. The pretend arrest, and I'm, I'm never going to let go of that. The making and the, you know, the, the actual constructing of strike signs and all that. I mean, are these legitimate tactics that the culinary has to use or is it become distraction? I think that's a really interesting question. And and on the socials, there's a, a bit of cynicism about the theater component of, you know, showing this seriousness of intent to strike. Um, and I guess I don't see it. I, I'm a bit less cynical about it. And I think in the age of you know, social media and, you know, virality. I think that the theater is a valuable and legitimate tactic. And it shows, you know, again, the seriousness of of their intent. And um, I almost feel like we're in an age where, you know, you know, acting and theater, you know, is kind of reality in this sense. So um, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with it. Yeah, I think it's just getting the word out, right? You know, um, they they did an amazing job of making people aware of what was happening. Right. I mean, also because like the consequences were so high too. And I, I kind of honestly admire them for that, the way that they've timed this, you know, right before a major event. Um, I, yeah, no, I think they did. I've seen worse. There's no doubt that the consequence to the city it, it, that's about to embark upon these very high profile strip city events um, was was there, but there was no no stakes at all, and, and I think it's just literally an affront to um, people who actually protest for something that they believe in and and do it at risk of being mistreated, maybe even physically by the police and arrested, which happens on the Las Vegas Strip for people who have positions that the police don't agree with, such as that we need police reforms, and that just happened two summers ago. You know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who didn't expect to be arrested were, in fact, arrested, some taken to jail, some which had their entire lives disrupted, mothers, grandmothers, uh, young people. Uh, I, I mean, the, the police were not kind to them. That's not the strikers or the protesters' fault, right? Like, No, but when they come out and compare themselves to the great civil disobedience leaders and, and the people like Martin Luther King that actually came out in a, in a culinary uh, press release saying that this arrest was akin to that. Look, the carceral system is broken. You call up the police, which, by the way, are also union members here, the PPA, and say, OK, we're going to arrange ahead of time for 50 people to be arrested. And then but they're just going to be taken away for the. Yes. Oh, it was definitely scripted. Yeah. And then we're just going to take them away for the cameras and then we're going to unrelease them and give them citations, which I almost assure you will be dismissed by the prosecutor's office. There is nothing at stake there other than a theatrical thing using, I would say, abusing the police system and letting them off the hook, like making the police in a way part of the good guys on this. When when people actually come out and put something on the line to protest, the police are not always the good guys. No, I And so to me, that was that was crossing a line for me. I also I totally get your perspective on this, obviously coming from a, a law background, your lawyer, David, right now. Um, did the means justify the end? You know, I'm not sure. I think that I um, am willing to subtract the individual choices here that were maybe not as wise um, for, you know, the the incredible life benefits this is going to have for such a large percent of the, of the population uh, here in Las Vegas. But I think your points are valid. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You're welcome, David. You are validated. Yeah, you know, sometimes... There actually is a whole parallel history of scripted symbolic protests. Mm. And it actually takes me back in mind to the long history of protests at the Nevada test site. And those were oh, those were definitely yeah. done in, you know, almost a scripted fashion in which people would, you know, cross the line and be arrested. It was expected. And I remember thinking when I would see this, wow, this almost sounds like it was sort of organized. Very different than collaborating and negotiating with the police to make sure everything goes right. Yes, sometimes people go out knowing they're going to be arrested. That is very different from what we saw and uh, very different from what culinary presented what they were doing. And I just feel like uh, I get it. you got to pull out all the stops to get to where you are to assert your power position. But that's a sandbox that they really shouldn't be playing around in because the stakes there are far more significant than uh, how it was presented. That's all. All right, let's move on to issue two, Uh, near and dear to my heart uh, as a downtowner. uh, There was something that came out recently that suggests that downtown Las Vegas bounced back from the pandemic better than anyone. Did we, Sarah? What was uh, what was the, the, the newest on that? Yeah, so I got to say there's a lot of ins and outs and what have yous and some contradictions uh, with this article. Um, So the article uh, that we looked at is from the Las Vegas Review Journal. And I just want to say that it unfortunately didn't link to the study this is is based on because it's based off a live talk. Um, But a woman named Karen Chappell, who's an urban studies researcher at the University of Toronto, um, she looked at the resiliencies of downtowns, uh, I assume both in uh, the United States and in Canada. um, And she used mobile phone location data. So a little bit like how Google determines where there's a traffic jam. Still a little creepy. Uh, you know, the the over, robot overlords are watching. Um, but so she was able to basically track our movements to figure out, you know, which downtowns of various size cities have come back. And Las Vegas's downtown has recovered uh, post-pandemic to 103% of its pre-pandemic mobile phone activity. So basically- Thanks, that, pandemic. Yeah, we're, we're back <laughs> better three. than ever. Yeah. So, so here is the their theories on why, yeah, that we're, we're back and like better than ever, that we've seen actually growth in our downtown post-pandemic. And it's basically because Las Vegas does not have a traditional downtown. Um, most city, mid-size and big city downtowns are office spaces, right? They're traditionally places that people have commuted to go to work. And in my experience, it's been like ghost towns after 5 p.m., right? But our downtown, while it does have some of our government buildings and things like that, we're not a like office building city, right? So much of our labor is within entertainment. So much of our downtown is about, we were talking about some of the performance venues down there and bars and restaurants. You know, it's a totally different downtown than most cities. So um, they also attribute, because it's not just us, it's some other Southwestern cities as well, that we have like better weather, which of course has made the pandemic easier on us all, you know, all told because we had more accessible outdoor space to where people felt safer. And so I think that the abundance of outdoor spaces in our downtown also has something to do with it, too. So that is the that's the gist. Andrew, do, do these stats uh, that seem to have been presented at this conference, do they line up with your experience of our downtown? Yeah, that's interesting because it kind of basically says because we don't have that sort of, you know, level of professional class that, you know, that is working from home, that 
we our particular downtown didn't didn't suffer. Um, so yeah, it is kind of a you know an interesting sort of backhanded compliment to our you know unique downtown. Yeah, I should point out that that's the deal that like now that we've switched to working from home, like other downtowns, you know, don't have people returning to work the same way that ours did. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what I got out of the study is, is it maybe suggested to me and we could talk about this is like, what ingredient does that suggest that, you know, our downtown should have to, you know, con- continue its, you know, its vibrancy and success. And it seems to say to me that, you know, maybe downtown should have things that are, you know, destination worthy for going there in itself, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a downtown where, you know, that has things to do because you happen to be there more like conveniences, you know? Um, so I thought that was interesting. And for me, I mean, uh, downtown needs housing, you know, housing, housing, yes. housing. For, you need people circulating in there and, and you know, creating that, you know, that, that substrate of, of effervescent, uh, you know, human energy that, uh, you know, makes uh, cool downtowns. Yeah, not just housing, but affordable housing is one of the things that they pointed to to say, like, this is what's going to continue this area to thrive. But honestly, the more I thought about this article, the more confused I was, because if we're talking about a downtown that's more akin to other areas, maybe that's actually the strip, not what we call downtown. You know what I mean? It's It's strange to sort of compare that area to, like, the financial district in New York. I worked in New York for two weeks back in October and, you know, I lived there for a long time, too. And so I'm guessing like the downtown of, of New York is like the financial district. So the same vibes. People go there during the day. They go home at night. And actually, I, I went down there uh, recently to hit up a bar and a restaurant, which is also kind of unusual. And there were actually people out on the streets and like going out to bars and restaurants. And the big shift since I left in 2018 is that they built more housing in the financial district. So it used to be this neighborhood you had never consider living in because it didn't really have um, resources for someone actually who wanted to set up house in the neighborhood. Um, but it seems to be more becoming more of like a, a Gen Z area because there is the newer housing there and then they begin to add other services. So that's the other thing that this article points out. If we want our downtown to continue to thrive, affordable housing, walkability, which is something else I love. Amen. And then we have to talk about uh, resources like grocery stores. And I think I would like to add too that, you know, those three things are also gentrifying. And we have to think about, especially with that area, how to gentrify for all, which is possible, how to make sure we we serve the residents who are already there while drawing in new people to continue um, to build up on that neighborhood. To me, I appreciate the cell phone data, but we've always been sort of a mixed use, if you will, when it comes to locals and tourists in this area. And really, none of us could ever, ever truly uh, agree on what are the the boundaries of downtown? What does downtown mean? Your downtown is like suburbia. Like it's totally different than like downtown Fremont Street. Yeah, in a lot of ways. I mean, I consider myself to be a downtown uh, person and, you know, it, it's purely residential. Um, and there are those office buildings and there are those courthouses and there is a mass exodus from the downtown area for all those office workers uh, every day at five o'clock. The courthouse empties, the law offices empty, the other office buildings. Uh, Some people do linger because there are so many food and beverage offerings. We also have a downtown, unlike any other downtown I've ever seen, that I counted them yesterday, that there are 16 coffee shops. Wow. In in basically a two-mile radius of each other. I mean, that's a weird kind of quirk of of Las Vegas. We have good coffee here. It's true. I don't hate it. Yeah, hella coffee. 
But like, I, you know, I would say too that like that is kind of what I mean by like gentrification for all. Like everybody loves a good cup of coffee. So I also want to see those coffee shops, you know, offer like a $2 cup, right? So that everyone in the neighborhood could access it. Like I don't want spaces to be exclusive. Well, n- now the new Winnie and Ethel's has 25 cent coffee a cup. So it's happening. Amazing. Yeah. This is wow. what I like to hear. This is what I love to hear. Yeah, coming from Cleveland, too, which is where I grew up, and our downtown really was a ghost town after 5 p.m., the biggest shift that happened down there is when they put a grocery store in. They took, honestly, an abandoned bank from Cleveland's heyday, and they put inside the most gorgeous grocery store I've ever seen, and that was a huge game changer. So as long as people know they have access to services, and we are driving city, but still, isn't it like nice to be able to walk to a grocery store, too? Oh, sure. Look, I appreciate downtown Las Vegas being lauded for its recovery. I think that there are a lot of factors that weren't considered by the study. And I think that a lot of suggestions from the study were a little wonky, too. Like, oh, you need more big uh, sporting events like the Super Bowl and the Oakland A's coming with the stadium. It's like, oh, come on. That was ironic because I know we're not excited about the A's. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I God bless a, a researcher from Canada, uh, probably really knows her stuff, but is her stuff really that uh, instructive to us? I mean, they were talking about walkability. There are some pockets of walkability downtown, but walk down one of those sidewalks with all the fencing and the poles in the middle of the street. It's not really accessible to people with challenges or disabilities yeah, or not yet. even the parents with strollers. I mean, the, the traffic uh, situation is really bad with uh, the speeds and the width of the streets. I could go on and on and on. I mean, look, downtown Las Vegas may be resilient because it has a very unique set of offerings to both locals and tourists, but by the same token, it is not utopia. Uh, never has been. Uh, it is it hard-pressed to be, be, but it's also very hot right now, and I just hope that that momentum creates thoughtful new growth and not just growth for the sake of growth. And I would love to see more building on those empty lots downtown than I would further and further out into the desert and into Red Rock, for God's sakes. Well, and that was one of the points that the uh, that Dave Swallow from the RTC says, like, you know, we'd love to focus more on walkability and transit and stuff, but the city keeps building out and yeah. out and out. And we have to serve places that we don't normally go. I mean, maybe I'm just a city girl, but I would much rather like live downtown and have this walkable accessibility to not just resources, but community um, rather than, you know, be sort of in in my own house on the edge of town. Sorry, people who live on their own houses on the edge of town. Um, But that's just my preference. And so I would like to see maybe housing available for, for both. Yeah. Well, anytime you want to come downtown, uh, downtowners Andrew Corrali and David Figler would love to show you all the fun stuff. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a party. I'm absolutely in. All the cool things. Let's get to our final topic, and that's this is the one I've been looking forward oh to. Gosh. We're going to call this Get to Know Her. Get to know Sarah Lohman, our new co-host. I called it Sarah Lohman Blitz Question Attack. <laughs> So, yeah. I'm like a little, a little <laughs> nervous. Woo! It's like, I don't want to call it speed dating, maybe speed hosting. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah speed you dating your future host, your current <laughs> future host. Okay. All right. So, Sarah, let's let's do your, your, your villain origin story, or is it yeah. your hero origin story? Tell us about your move to Vegas. What brought you here? 
Yeah, yeah. So I already name dropped all the the places that I lived in. I was in New York for 13 years. I'm from Northeast Ohio. 2018, I moved to uh, Cleveland, which is also where I went to school. Luckily, was there during the pandemic. I said because my parents are also there. Um, and literally, I have a best friend. Shout out to Kim Miller, who was born and raised here. Whenever I would visit her, I would get to see the real Las Vegas, like all of the different things that makes this place so cool. Um, and honestly, a little after the pandemic, her brother got a new job and sent me a text message and was like, I travel a lot. I really need someone to take care of my cats. Do you want to move to Las Vegas? Oh, the cats. They'll (laughs) suck you in every time. So it's basically a permanent cat sitting deal long term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I moved out and now I'm in my old residency in yeah, yeah. I, so I did a residency for two years. So I moved in August of 2021. And now I'm actually in my own place uh, in townsite Henderson. Um, I'm in a, and I'm a real Henderson nerd. I love, love, love this neighborhood. I love that. Townsite Henderson. Because you're old school Henderson. Damn, she claimed OG right from the start. Yeah. She's like not far <laughs> from Water Street. I love that. No, no, no. Walkable to Water Street, which is exactly what I love. Like to me, this it has it all. Like I, I have a walkable neighborhood, but like it's also really easy for me to get out into nature and also really easy for me to like go downtown and, and enjoy all the offerings there. All right. Hey, Sarah, let's just get to this and let's let's just do this popcorn style, Andrew. You and I will go back and forth and pepper her with questions, but rapid fire. No, no explanations, no disclaimers, oh just gosh. what comes to mind. You ready, Sarah? Oh, free association. Okay, let's go. All right. What is your favorite pizza in town? Evil pie. If you were in control of the sphere for one day, what would you display on it? Boobies. <laughs> Boobies. <laughs> Maybe a uniboob since it's one sphere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just one. Just the good one. Yeah, just one. Yeah. I just like round things work better on it. So that's the first thing that came to mind. Okay. Which notable Las Vegan would you be most okay getting stuck in an elevator with? Um, Whiskey Pete. I hear he was very handsome. (laughs) Okay. First of all, Whiskey Pete. I'm not going to call him a Las Vegan. So I want you to reset. No, reset. (laughs) Whiskey Pete's a prim guy. Come on. Is he a mascot? All right. Move on. Move on. Go, Andrew. Go, Andrew. Whiskey Pete. Main Street or Water Street? Water Street, baby. Oh, boy. April or October? April. Oh. Mojave Max or Chance the Gila Monster? Oh, that you're really tearing my heart in, in twain here. It's that reptile conundrum. Reptile's choice. Sophie's reptile Max. choice. <laughs> the Gila Monster. Uh, tortoises. I'm sorry. They're just so stupid. Go, Knights, go. Go, Knights, go. But Gila monsters are really adorable. And if you make them really mad, they'll try to poison you. And and Chance is the most adorable of them all. Although my my entry to that is Finn the Bat Dog. Um, Okay, Sarah, where are you most likely to be on a Saturday night? Oh, this is a great question. Probably trying out uh, like a cocktail bar. Nice. Uh, what is your Vegas life hack? Ooh, that's a good last one. Mm, okay. Just get out of the city, you yeah. know? We forget, but it's like so close. Living in Henderson at my first place here, I could literally walk out into the desert. And sometimes you just need that reset. Walk out into the desert. Bring water. Ain't that the truth? Sometimes the best way to love Las Vegas is get yeah. the F out of Las Vegas for a little bit. Great mm-hmm. answers. Mm-hmm. All right. I said that was the last one, but I got one more that's maybe a little closer to home. Uh, and 
You've got like almost 400 to choose from here, Sarah. So here comes the question. What has been so far your favorite City Cast Las Vegas episode? Oh my God. And you, I'm going to disqualify the ones that you were on. Shoot, I was going to say buffets. Yeah. I did yeah. really love that episode. No, that was a great episode, but come on, bring it. Okay. Uh, okay, I have one and then a close second. I really love the uh, quizzes that you did with uh, Vogue um, about like Las Vegas history, both because I'm a history nerd and because I'm very competitive. So I hope that... Oh, the Corey Leviton ones. Yeah, yeah. those are totally yeah, yeah, yeah. fun. Those are really fun. And so I hope I get to waste you in a trivia contest at some point. Uh, and then my my second fave is the recent one you did about the road trip up to Tonopah because I just decided to do that this past weekend with my friend and experience some weird Nevada. Oh, the practical applications of CityCast Las Vegas episodes. Yeah. Awesome. I took your advice. I made a map and then I went and did it. And I'm imagining if people follow you on social media, they could probably see some pictures from that trip. They absolutely can. I just posted them. I just went this past weekend. You have a really fun handle on Instagram. Why don't you shout that one out? Uh, my handle is four at four pounds flower. It's all spelled out four pounds flower. That's where you can find me as well, of course, as on the CityCast LV Instagram too. Um, Quick lineage. What, 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 what is the handle in reference to? So in my other life, when I'm not your favorite host on CityCast, um, I am a food historian and I blogged for many, many years. That's how I got my career started. And uh, I love alliteration. And I was just looking through, I have a huge collection of historic cookbooks and I found a recipe for wedding cake from the 1830s. And that's how the recipe starts, four pounds flour. And my reaction was really <laughs> like, that's a shitload of cake. That sounds like a lot of flour, yeah. Yeah, so I just thought it was really funny and that sort of like, became came my tag for all my food history work. I love it. And I, and I love the work that you do with food history. You, Thanks, David. You, you have books out. People should check that out as well. What a specific anecdote. Yeah, right? It's so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but, but the books are great. David, you're being so nice. You're making me feel bad for being a little mean to you this episode. That's all right. I could take it. Um, right. Look, John Ralston shit on me a couple days ago, so <laughs> I could take what Sarah Lohman's got. Um, <laughs> hey, Sarah Lohman, welcome to CityCast Las Vegas as the co-host. And Andrew Crawley, always a favorite contributor. Thanks for being back here for the Friday News Roundup. Aww. Thank you. For sure. And that is all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Our executive producer is Sonia Cho Swanson. Our producer is Layla Muhammad. Our newsletter editor is Scott Dickensheets. And your hosts are Sarah Lohman and me, David Bigler. Music is by OG Moose, Epidemic Sound, and All the Kimonos. We record this show on the traditional homelands of the new movie, The Southern Paiute People. And also this week, special thanks to A.K. Al Moomin and Lizzie Goldsmith. If you enjoyed the show, go tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Till then, stay lucky. I was just thinking that I would like never want a robot blackjack dealer because I think it takes um, away or like a like any kind of card dealer. It takes away from like what is appealing about that interaction. Right. right so I would right, never right. want that. Right. I definitely. 
I got an old piece that I love bringing back to have like a Westworld Yule Brenner blackjack dealer <laughs> who's just malfunctioning, just draw, the face just draw, falls off. draw, 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 and then he shoots you. So yeah, 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 I could see that. I don't know.